After a big night of karaoke in the capital, we drove north in a borrowed Škoda. On the car stereo she played Sibelius, and we listened as the orchestra strained to convey that land of birch and spruce in strings and brass across space and time. I say we drove, but actually I was in the passenger seat, drifting in and out of sleep, and Finlandia came and went through my ears and eyes, and to this day I cannot be sure which of the Scandinavian landscapes I remember were real and which were pure imagination. But so often it goes like this on road trips. For a long while I had a preference for the passenger's seat. I'd press my face against the glass and try to take in everything there was to witness through the window. The world would whip past, but you could catch a glimpse of so much. Snippets from which you'd stitch up the stories of the country around you and those who lived in it. I have a cupboard full of notebooks and the contents of those are often comprised of wobbly scrawls I scribbled whilst sitting in a vehicle going 100 k's an hour. It got even better, I always thought, when I was positioned in the back seat. For there you could follow whole daydreams to their conclusions, forgotten on the margins of the driver's attention. Sometimes I would find myself unravelling the entire plot of some fiction or fantasy to an altogether unforeseen outcome the narrative also driven at top speed. And often enough I found myself thinking, this journey could go on forever and I would not mind. I would be perfectly satisfied if we never reached our destination. That day in Finland I'd have been happy to have carried on to the Arctic Circle and then turned around and come back again. Movement can be its own form of meditation. And sometimes it can be medicine. Sometimes it does pay to run away from things. Or towards something. Towards anything. Now I must confess that these days I prefer to be at the helm. My own feet stomping on the accelerator and brake. Weaving through traffic. Making decisions about where to stop for snacks which exit to take, what to do at a T-junction, whether or not to turn at an alluring side road, a detour that could go anywhere. I suppose I'm no longer comfortable being so passive, the passenger. And even more shamefully, I love to drive alone, to travel solo and take in long distances as the CD player skips and my car burns its various oils and fires carbon into the atmosphere. The road trip, regrettably, tends to be paired with the petrol pump. Each route is punctuated with pauses at these bowsers, the smell of refined oil, the gasoline gushing into the tank till it clicks, the car as full as a goog with fuel, ready to veer off combusting ancient fossils once more. I sadly concede that each excursion we make in a car is another compromise with the modern world. On such terms I took off recently, on a wet afternoon, away from the simplicity of my bush abode. I took one last, long, forlorn look at the train carriage in which I live, 
reversed onto the gravel track, rolled down the hill, and disappeared from view with only the vaguest of destinations in mind. Travel is a tricky topic. I think about it almost incessantly. Jesus once posed a question that I've since framed as a traveller's conundrum. What good is it to gain the whole world if in the process you lose your soul? And on one of the old CDs I have scattered throughout my car, many of them relics from adolescence, there's a query that I find much the same. Where do you move if what you're moving from is yourself? But when you accept that you take yourself with you wherever you go, the motion seems to be of use. It can mediate and blur the lines between the inner and outer existences. And a while back I began to hypothesise that perhaps the world was my soul. After a long, stationary hiatus, I left the bush dwelling that's been my home for the past couple of years. Home is the old railway wagon that I rent, a train carriage that gives no opportunity for travel. It was retired a long while ago. But of course, I've been able to use it as a base from which I've launched other journeys. Such were the plans when I moved here, at least. I was driving all over Tassie for gigs and guiding work. I was starting to stumble into opportunities on the mainland of Australia. And I had ideas of going to the Himalayas or Central Asia or Latin America again. And the train carriage would serve as a nest for dreaming, a refuge for philosophising, and a respite for my more introverted pursuits. Yet a few months into it, my itinerant lifestyle became rather more inhibited, for reasons I don't need to describe. Yet if I've been stuck in this shack a bit more often than I'd intended, it's not been so regrettable. I live in a beautiful place with plenty of light and space and serenity. And in fact, though I mightn't have asked for it, I've relished the chance to experience stillness on a more regular basis. Until recently, anyway. Then an old restlessness seized me, a need to see new things, encounter different people and to walk out onto an open road in the same way that the fisherman in the old story stepped onto the surface of a lake, with tremulous faith in unknown things. So I booked a spot for my 99 Nissan Pulsar on the ferry that crosses Bass Strait. It was always a slightly perilous, precarious set of travel plans, and the latest chaos of COVID cases were the news of the day in various Australian cities, including some adjacent to the countrysides and mountains that I'd been meaning to visit. 
Nevertheless, I wheeled my car into the bowels of that ship, then went up onto deck seven, took a glass of Tassie Cab Merlot, and untethered my mask so that I could sip it. I had refused to make a strict itinerary. Not only because of the uncertain conditions in different places, but, as I joked to friends, because I was likely to get on the wrong road out of Melbourne either way. But at dawn I found myself on the M1, and for the first time in 16 months I saw a city view, skyscrapers that rose into clouds which wore pastel colours I'd not expected. Then there were roadworks, and I didn't merge in time, and suddenly I was on a different highway, going somewhere else. So I accidentally came upon the giant koala, south of Stall. The grampians were covered with a heavy clamp of damp cloud, the op shop in Beaufort was a letdown, I'm sorry to say. But I stopped for an afternoon coffee on the edge of a district called Little Desert. And then the sun soared over the plains of the West Wimmera, where wattles bloomed along the roadside. Upon reaching South Australia, I parlayed with a border guard who seemed pleased to be able to act like a real enforcer now, like someone I might meet crossing overland into Nicaragua or Pakistan. Then... Sunset, and schnitty night at the Kunalpan pub. I got the Mexican version, so my slab of crumbed chicken came with avocado and a dollop of sour cream plopped on top. I ordered a pint of Cooper's Ale, forgetting that what South Australians call a pint is in reality a schooner, and so I subsequently bought three more. It was a fun and friendly pub but the telly was on and all the news hissed and gossiped about that bloody virus, which seemed to be wending its way through more and more communities again, and coming west to where we were. I crept out the back, crawled into my tent, and slept with a willful forgetfulness of the wider world, and instead thought about how road is an old word, and then who knows how ancient are the names for the walking tracks that the Narkat people and their neighbours will have had throughout centuries to describe their routes across the Mallee Heath around me that night. Any road strikes me as deep with meaning and three-dimensional, because the hours go with the kilometres, and for those with a sense of historical awareness, it is not hard to extrapolate this into centuries and countries. If I were ever to come to believe in reincarnation, it would somehow have to be tied up with the concept of movement back and forth upon a road. We know that other travellers have come before us. And we know there's a chance we will become somebody else along the way. And as I thought all this, I was reminded that I had come through Kunalpan before, a few years back, with a Flemish woman who would not have let us drive on when we saw a sign advertising waffles. And fair enough, too. It was the perfect moment of road trip happenstance, and I vowed I'd be back in Kunalpan again someday. But I suppose I wouldn't have guessed the circumstances. That, however, is the nature of the road, I suppose. Its purpose is to take you somewhere far from where you once were, and perhaps to bring you back again, if you're lucky.
Before I left Krakow, Katerina gave me a copy of Jack Kerouac's On the Road, translated into her native language. Vdrodze. Or at least that's how I think it's pronounced. Apart from that title, I can basically read not a single word of Polish. But I received the gift gratefully nevertheless, a memento of my journey through her neck of the woods. I was some months into a trip that had no itinerary and no planned ending. For months I had Vdrodze in my backpack, a book that was not at all useful to me, but which told a story in itself, a story separate yet not unrelated to the contents of Kerouac's actual novel. Within those pages, I knew, were the thinly-veiled tales of sad, drunk Kerouac, who one suspects never learned to relate to women, or anyone, maybe. But when I was younger and made my first jaunts overseas and yearned for more unknowns, On the Road had a spark within it that flared into a fierce dream. On a plane to the US, I'd read Kerouac's descriptions of avenues lined with palm trees, dim bars, fruit vendors, shit hotels and roads that led towards diminishing sunsets. Even today, my image of the US is probably partly blended with those accounts, a fabrication made a little bit by Kerouac, a fair bit by myself, and only a small amount reality. So when the Polish version was given to me, I stuffed it into my backpack and carried it with me, even though I was unable to read a word. And I would travel indefinitely across several continents before I got home and put it safely in a bookcase. That was about a decade ago now. Every so often I'm still tempted to open up the pages and read what the Drodza holds. But I don't suppose it would quite have the same effect on me now. Better, perhaps, to leave the novel's contents between its covers, vaguely recalled in memory, intertwined with the true landscapes of the US West. Vydrodza is only one of countless works of travel literature I have in my improvised library here, fiction and non-fiction, and most of the rest of them are in languages I can actually read. In the months since I last left Tassie, I've gone to the Amazon, southern Arabia, Mount Kailash, northern Ireland, the top end of the Northern Territory, throughout the Aegean, Armenia. I have travelled in exceptional and eccentric company, Freya Stark, Nicholas Rothwell, Robert Desay, Dervla Murphy, Ismail Kadare, Vida Sackville-West and Odysseus, just to name a few. And I have wondered, why is the road so ideal as a setting for written stories? I suppose new places offer new visions. New people prompt new ideas. New languages create new challenges. Travel is perilous. Yet it can also be a relief. It rejuvenates, forces you to make fresh observations, shakes you from a state of alienation. Movement sometimes makes you a better person. As Cervantes wrote, the road is better than the inn. And therein lies the heart of the travel narrative. There is a sense that things might change around every bend because you do not know what's there. It might be a mob of machete-wielding bandits, or perhaps a kind-hearted old lady at a burrito stall. Some travellers have believed that to go to an unknown place is to enter into the mystery of life more deeply. The poet Matsuo Bashu was one of those, 
in the spring of 1689, he sold his house and took off on his horse to the north of Honshu, not planning to return. To him, travelling towards those unknown districts was a spiritual act. To travel to the deep north was not just a geographical deed, but was an allegory for the way we pass through our lives as well. A deep north is deep inside any of us. And this is good territory for writing new material, to see the world from a different perspective. But the poems of Bashu tell us that he travelled much like any of us would today. He writes about troublesome dogs, monotonous trails, crappy nights of sleep. Many of his poems are about reunions with old friends and farewells. And though he liked the road, he didn't seem to mind the inn as well. There are a lot of references to getting drunk and enduring hangovers, which is regrettably familiar. Writers like Bashu notice the beautiful flowers, the foreign landscapes, the unusual architecture, the changing weather, and the poignant moments on a journey in which nothing much is happening. As I've said, travel can heighten your senses and perhaps help you tune into the significance of ordinary events. But you can also cultivate that at home. A plain grey bird, a tree's silhouette, a common sunrise, a cup of tea. All of these can make a ripple of sheer joy or sweet melancholy run through the heart. That's what it's been like for me for the last 16 months. But I have eventually concluded that what happens on the road somehow seems prettier more colourful and more sentimental because those moments come with built-in nostalgia. It is very possible that wherever you pass in some distant country, you will never be able to revisit. In the plum's fragrance, as Bashu wrote, the single term, the past, holds such pathos. And on this journey through the world, There are the encounters with people who through some unseen alchemy can become our friends. And sometimes we are lucky enough to meet with them again somewhere along the way. Matsuo Bashu's reunions are beautifully described. At Minakuchi he met with a mate he'd not seen for 20 years. Inochi futatsu no, naka ni ikitaru, sakrukana, he wrote. Our two lives... Between them has lived this blossoming cherry.
There's this one ribbon of road that I drive fairly often. It's about 15 kilometres from the train carriage to the nearest town, where I use the library, purchase groceries, and supplement my social life with other people. I like the town. It's picturesque and it has five pubs for about 2,000 of us. And I like the drive as well. It's mostly comprised of straight lines through cleared paddocks, but it's got four or five sections where the road bends over a forested hillside. Making the same journey so often gives me a chance to take stock of how the land shows signs of changes throughout the seasons. In autumn, spiders wrap gorse up in cobwebs as if to mummify them. In winter, there seems to be permafrost in sheltered bushy spots. In spring, the plovers will occupy a corner paddock and defend their eggs against the raids of rival birds. And all year round, you'll see peregrine falcons roving the properties like the bushrangers of old. Some mornings over those plains pockmarked with pumice stones, the mist rolls in, spreads over the land like vineyard nets. And sometimes in the rearview mirror, you notice that snow has fallen by surprise on the summits of an adjacent mountain range. But one thing you get used to driving in Tasmania is the evidence of death. Scattered along the roads, or sprawled across the middle of them, are animals who have collided with a car and perished. In that ten-minute drive, I might count two dozen dead animals. Paddy melons reduced to slumping forms. Possums squished into bloody mess. Birds whose bodies have been crushed into anonymity. Sometimes just a pair of wings sticking upwards, as if it's an angel that's been hit. I don't often drive at night, and if I do, I go slow. It's sad enough to bear witness to these carcasses, sadder still to participate in the death itself. Wombats make the worst victims, and sometimes I think their corpses are the most miserable. A wombat's body is as hard as a boulder, and it can wreck the oncoming car. Once deceased, they make miserable big heaps of grey fur. Sometimes a roadkill wombat will remind me of a British tourist who has imbibed too much and passed out ingloriously, snoozing and snoring on the roadside with a grimace on his face and bad teeth on display. Yet a wombat also likes roads. For example, it makes its own tracks across moorland, so obvious that sometimes it seems like a trail made for human use. And not a few novice bushwalkers have gotten lost because of this confusion. At night in the national parks you will see wombats travelling like tourists on the built-up boardwalks. And you half wonder if they won't later consult their Fitbits to see how far they've gone. Aboriginal languages have specific words for wombat tracks, exposing one of the many weaknesses in English. We don't have lingo to describe the lives of those with whom we live. Not down here anyway. And so it is that our roads cross with the paths of other creatures and we simply expect to have our way, that the other critters will cede their roots to us wherever we wish to lay our asphalt. Just before I left Tassie, I saw a squished echidna. 
It had perhaps come out of hiding a little earlier than it ought to have, goaded into the open by a day of golden winter sunlight and the aroma of an ant's nest. It waddled heedlessly across the highway and under the wheels of a speeding vehicle. A tragic victim. Because nothing seems as innocent as an echidna. In the warmer months, you see them often in the verge of the road, sticking their noses into the earth in its perpetual search for ants to eat, wandering blindly, navigating by scent. At such times, I can only think in dismay of the difference between how we experience the world. A poet mate writes of the earth attunement of echidnas. But that can't be said of us as we hoon through country, out of touch. The echidna scribbles its chart in the dirt with light feet. We obliterate the environment with our heavy tyres, our snarling engines, and in doing so we miss almost all of the feel of the land around us. We can't hear it, we can't taste it. Only the eye connects and quickly at that. We make almost no contact. As far as I'm concerned... Echidnas should have right of way on the road, since they have the most right way. Then there is the eagle, who travels an invisible road, guided by a vision and an instinct entirely inaccessible to us. To them our own tracks hacked into the surface of the earth must seem useless. To these predators our roads are dead. As they ride the wind, the raptors are moving on a living road. From their vantage point, they can see where paths properly lead. The bird's perspective is the one we've borrowed for our maps for that reason. Humans have evolved to have a somewhat heightened perspective. Our figures, tall and gangly, with our eyes near the tops so that we might see into the distance a little bit. But our view only goes so far. And more often than not, the road ducks behind a hill, and we cannot see how it bends beyond the horizon. In truth, we can only ever navigate a kilometre or two ahead. Otherwise, all our orienteering has to be improvised. It is mostly a matter of guesswork.
The road ahead does what it wants. Once upon a time I came upon a pithy saying that seemed worthy of taking on as a personal catchphrase, and it seems to be getting more useful as the years progress. I'll repeat it again. Proceed as the way opens. It's a saying from the Quakers, I think, who I suppose at least have an end point that they're aiming for, a religious purpose, a celestial outcome. I am just bumbling on forwards, proceeding to something I'm not sure about, but the motto still fits. As I sprinted around the countryside in my Nissan Pulsar, borders shut behind me. Cities went into straightened circumstances, singing and dancing were banned again, businesses closed, tension increased. I wasn't so stressed, but followed my plans through a range of mountains nearer to the centre of the country. Magenta soil and purple rocks, teal-coloured gum leaves and bottle-green pine needles, where the wallabies have tiger stripes and the parrots wear feathers the colours of the Caribbean Sea. As the road emptied, I relaxed. I even gave myself a shy grin in the rear-view mirror. In town they would be locked down. But out here, what restrictions could apply? I pitched my tent by a stack of scented wood as the moon rose over the cypress pines. A lively fire leapt at my feet and I brewed a billy of tea and scrawled in my notebook. My luck is bound to run out, I wrote. There will be a kink in the track ahead, a border beyond which I cannot travel. And indeed, the next day I was told I could no longer camp, that I couldn't be homeless in a lockdown, that I had to have an address, that even my access to the trails into the hills would be limited. The way was no longer open. I would have to proceed to a situation that was altogether more stationary. I admit that for a hot minute, that was a little bit stressful. The thought of driving some hours back to the city to pass a week in a tiny room seemed counterintuitive. So I stayed in the mountain, paid for a unit in a resort and was told not to go too far. But I could still venture around that district, get to know the new neighbourhood, scrape my hiking boots on those old stones sniff the foliage of unfamiliar plants. I gazed up at the river red gums in the rain, the trunks all glossy and greenish, everything otherworldly. And I could meditate on those trees, whose growth has been slow over the course of many centuries. Their exquisite colours and terrific girth a gift of the conditions in which they live, fixed as they are to a single spot, firm in their longitude and latitude, unable to escape, bound to the earth. So the road trip yet again had me contemplating things slowly. Stillness has made me often think of movement, and now I learned that it was true when the concepts were put vice versa as well. It was as though I'd travelled a thousand kilometres to go nowhere, or rather to take a journey upon another more metaphorical path, travelling deeper inside myself, and in a different sense more closely to the world around us, 
to attune myself to the earth, perhaps. And only a week or so later I was on a highway parallel to the Southern Ocean, in a quadrant of the map that hadn't been in my original plans. I had a friend at my side and a long neck of stout in my lap. The road was black, and a singer murmured melancholy lyrics on our stereo, and the night might have gone on forever, and I would not have minded, not one little bit.' 